0: I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land I'm recording from and pay my respects to the Kamaragul people and their elders, past and present. I also acknowledge the traditional owners from all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lands you are listening from. Hi, my name is Sarah Malik and I am your host for the SBS Book Club. Today we have Melissa Lukashenko, who won the 2019 Miles Franklin with her sixth novel, Too Much Lip. She's back with her seventh novel, Eden Glassy. Eden Glassy is a historical fiction set in two timelines. One in 1855, where we meet Melanian, who falls in love with the beautiful Nita in Eden Glassy, Brisbane, at a time when First Nations people still outnumber the British. As colonial unrest peaks, Melanian dreams of taking his bride home to Bay country, but his plans for independence collide with white justice. Two centuries later, in 2024, fiery activist Winona meets Dr Johnny. Together they care for Granny Eddie and Sparks Fly. What nobody knows is how far the legacies of the past will reach into their modern lives. Melissa is a guru author of Bunjalung and European Heritage. What I love about her work is not only her ability to spin yarns full of love and humour, but of centering the First Nations experience in a history too often dominated by outsiders to the culture. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Thank you for making time for us. Hello, Sarah. So, Melissa, in the book, one character says, "...by telling a story, you can change the world, and nothing is as powerful as the right story at the right time." Now, you conceived of this story back in the 1990s.
1: Why was now the right time for this story? Ah, well, as I sit here in Magunjan, Brisbane on Yagara land, it seems to me that maybe the time was always right to tell this story, but maybe I wasn't ready. Uh, back in the 1990s, you know, back then I would have been about 40 and writing, writing novels and writing good novels, but not ready to tackle Uh, a book of this complexity and this cultural depth in particular. I needed to learn more about guri culture and uh, engage more with uh, traditional owners to actually understand uh, what had happened here and what remains. Is it true that in 2020 you actually had a dream about the book? Yeah, yeah. It was um, about 2019, 2020. And as I've said elsewhere, I'm not actually sure if I was awake or asleep. Um, I do keep journals, but I go through laptops at a rate of not, so it was about three laptops ago. <laughs> um, otherwise I could go back and look. And, yeah, I, it really felt like a visitation from the spirit world. And it's happened to me t- once before when I was very young and just the, I woke up with the, the feeling like I'd been so stupid not to realise before that this had to be a book about love and connection and human possibility i suppose rather than a simple historical novel of the the evils done and and the consequences that we live with
0: can you tell us about the decision to set the book in two timelines one in 1855 and one in 2014
1: yeah that that wasn't my original intention but i knew that one of the main issues of the book was going to be not repeating or adding to the the trope of the dying race, you know, this racist idea that Australians until very recently have had that all Aboriginal people are either dead and gone or so damaged that we no longer really qualify as Aboriginal except for maybe a few people in the outback. So I had to insert the modern timeline uh, to have living, breathing, agitating, loving, you know, lively characters to counteract any, any kind of hint of the dying race.
0: Yeah. And I can really see that, you know, it's not skirting away from the evils of colonialism, but it's a really strength-based book. And was that kind of the decision around setting it in 1855, where it's roughly equal, the British colonists and First Nations people in Brisbane are roughly half and half? Like,
1: was that the kind of thinking around that setting? When people, outsiders, think about colonisation, if they're not well-informed, they, they tend to have this simplistic idea that uh, the British arrived, colonisation happened, and Aboriginal society just crumbled and, and failed really quickly. And uh, certainly in Sydney, the, the numbers who died of illness were massive. I think uh, 90% or something of the uh, Indigenous population died very quickly. But in Brisbane, we did lose lots of people to disease as well as to shootings and poisonings. But the core Aboriginal culture was not destroyed. It was never destroyed and it took a long time to be diminished. And so I wanted to show this time before we were institutionalised, before the laws about removing children came in, before the missions were established, this kind of period of flux and possibility when it could have gone a number of different ways to take the emphasis off the arrival of the white man as the be-all and end-all. And I do that very deliberately in the opening scene of, I think it's chapter two. It was originally the opening scene where the um, Yagra family are uh, on their homelands, on the bend in the river, and there's something white coming up the river. That was my first undermining of the reader's expectation about what I was going to centre in the book.
0: Yeah, and I love how you centre this whole complex world and ecosystem of First Nations communities. And one of the opening scenes is where young Melanian is taken by his father to a uh, pulin pulin, which is basically kind of a UN UN diplomatic circle where this is where talks happen, where ceremonies happen, where there's strategies around mm. the new arrivals. Like, what was the research process around recreating those cultural scenes?
1: Probably decades of being a community member and listening when elders and other knowledgeable people speak, firstly, and then uh, yeah, looking at the historical written record. But uh, for example, the the location of the Pullen Pullen Wollengaba, I knew that Wollengaba meant um, means place of swirling waters. Uh, but because I'd been told decades earlier that that swirling waters is a metaphor for the coming in of clans and the the interaction of clans on the pull and pull and ground and, and the way people meet and um, you know interact and and engage in uh, armed combat in a regulated way, um, so that that's in a sense I didn't need to research that. That was information that was already with me. So the whole book was a, a mixture of what I've learned over decades uh, of being a black fella in Brisbane and um, and down the coast on Bundjalung country too.
0: It's such a real ode to First Nations culture, spirituality, ecology, like reverence for the environment like systems of protocol and governments, like it's it's so beautiful. And there's a beautiful scene um, where Milan is fishing and he's feeling really egotistical and he's really proud of, <laughs> you know, this beautiful big mother fish that he catches and he's told by his elder that in order to balance the ecosystem he needs to let it go. And I was wondering if you could read a portion of the book that describes that scene, which is one of my favourites in the book. Oh,
1: absolutely. The boy had always known that he was gory one of the thousands of citizens who belonged to the five Yugamber rivers, which fell like wide blue ribbons from the Western Range. He knew that he'd been born a son, a grandson, a brother, a father, an uncle, a grandfather. Through a web of unbreakable connections, he belonged to everyone among his coastal nation. Now the future shimmered like early dawn breaking silver and gold upon the Baragara for he knew his destiny as well. He gazed down at his hands. The palms were calloused, his young fingers already strong from thousands of hours wielding the toro net, the spear and the fishing line. His wit was sharp and his body strong. He knew the shadows of the different fishes on the ocean floor, the different waves which held them, the phases of the moon which summoned them or kept them away. He had been taught by his Jung where to find the correct bait for every species in every season, had been instructed by his fathers of those fish and creatures expressly forbidden him. The clan's big river, too, had few mysteries to reveal. He had lived beside it for nearly 15 mullet runs, and it was as dear to him as a sweetheart. That evening... As his young brother and sisters lay asleep inside the family's hut, the boy stood apart, felt set apart from them. Ngaya Mabin Jalambira, he whispered to the Southern Cross in wonder. I am almost a man, a Baragara man. I will know the shark and the dolphin and the stingray as kin and more than kin. And they will all know me. It occurred to him to wonder where the matriarch was. He imagined her swaying in the heavy swell beneath the cliff, asleep or perhaps resting. Whatever she was doing, whatever the mulloway ever did from this day onwards, would be partly due to his actions today. With that thought, the boy had the electric realisation that all his life, he had been eating the decisions of his ancestors. Every fish, every mud crab, every yuguri or turtle or vegetable or egg or fruit, they all came to him, to all his people, from generations of nurture. None of it was accidental or random. And if his old people hadn't cherished the biggest fish and the female turtles, if they hadn't sung up the country and protected the fecund of every species since the dawn of time, then he would not have eaten the results from the fire that night. Just as his children and grandchildren still unborn had needed him to release today's matriarch, the thought consumed him with wonder. It made him feel small, yet at the same time as though he belonged, in a universe of meaning, part of a web of ceaseless and sacred connection across thousands of generations. Wow. <laughs> that just gives me shivers. I spent a lot of time on that passage, on, the, on that scene of Mullenin catching the fish and then being told, no, you've got to put it back. All your labour has been in vain. Uh, I must have rewritten that 50 times, I reckon. I'm glad you've got chills. <laughs> Thank you for
0: that, for for labouring over that. (laughs) Um, And, you know, we talked a lot about how this challenging of colonial myths and histories, which privileges, you know, the white colonists' perspective and this kind of radical act that you have of just switching the lens by centering the First Nations experience and how kind of incomprehensible white people were to the First Nations people. And, Mm. you know, there's a scene, um, it goes, Everywhere the white men go, Malanian thought, they mark their passage in stone and iron, for there is no softness in them. All they understand Mm. is guns, whips, shackles and steel. All their world is built on cruelty. Is war normal for the clans of England, he asks? In a way, I suppose, it's different. Their country holds no dreamings to keep them home. If the British recognised no dreamings at all, then England was pure savagery. Life there would be an endless, nightmarish struggle for dominance and control. Mm. All of us grew up hearing about how English settlement was this bastion of civilisation and progress, and did you kind of enjoy busting that
1: colonial propaganda a bit by switching the lens? I enjoyed it very much, and I took great pains to do it well, because that's really the point of the book. To say that everything that's historically been taught and told about black fellas here in Yagra country is so wrong. You know, the, the, this idea that we had no governance, this idea that we, we had no theology, that we had no strategies for peace, no strategies for a sustainable life. So much is, is yet to be discovered by the world, you know. And of course, it's economics that underlies that uh, white supremacist um, depiction of Aboriginal lives. Uh, so I guess I'm, I'm adding fuel to that fire to try and burn down the edifices of white supremacist British um, thinking and uh, pose an alternative to, to the uh, the lies.
0: I think Iris says um, not only are stories powerful but stories can harm as well as heal. Yeah. And yeah. so a lot of those those colonial narratives are ones that like are deeply harmful.
1: Deeply harmful and harmful to the nation as a whole, you know, not just to us. Uh, and you know Australia is diminished when people don't understand where they are and what's happened in a place and what can replace that. It doesn't have to be this way. There is a more civilised way to live than what the British claimed to bring here and what's grown up in the shadow of convictism. You know, we don't have to be a nation of convicts at war with each other and, and scrabbling for resources and clinging to these hideous, outdated ideas. We can build a better Australia and we can do that. Um, first and foremost, by learning what the oldest civilization on the planet learned here.
0: And kind of speaking of that world and, you know, not having a sustainable way to live or savagery, like it's actually that is the world of the colonists yeah. you know, in 1855 where, yeah. you know, there is like this desperate inequality and cruelty within their own society. There is, you know, really a no idea how to connect with land, labour shortages. Mm. Can you kind of depict and paint this picture of the world of eighteen fifty five in my
1: study where I wrote the book, I had some uh, little cards on the wall and uh, I had things written there like gold, water, pox, these these different elements of of the um, colonial life. and one of them was impermanence because in a colonial setting, you know the people who came from elsewhere, A lot of them didn't want to be here, of course. You know, the convicts almost universally wouldn't have wanted to be here. Uh, The soldiers who came to guard them didn't necessarily want to be here. The administrators who were here running the convict establishment um, may or may not have wanted to be here. A lot of them were carpetbaggers, you know. They wanted to come, if they had come voluntarily, come, make money, find gold. If they were pastoralists, they wanted to claim land and grow cattle and sheep. But uh, a hell of a lot of them didn't think of this as somewhere that they were going to stay. They were going to come, you know, take resources from the place and then bugger off back to Europe. That was important <laughs> in in this sense of yeah. colonial Brisbane as a place of violence in many, many senses and of Mullinian as a young man, he's only 17. He's wise and he's skillful and he's knowledgeable in culture, but he's trying to negotiate a future for himself and a free future for himself. And to do that, he wants to get away from the town and get out onto the salt water, which is his birthright anyway. Uh, so it's it's by physically removing himself from the town and making a living as a fisherman that he sees that as his future because the town is dust and bullet carts and a, a butcher called Maine who's a historical figure who was fond of flourishing a whip in Queen Street at anyone that he didn't like the look of. It's a world of native police who are essentially sanctioned by the uh, the colony of New South Wales to kill Aboriginal people almost at will.
0: Was that was that
1: based on a real history, like the native police? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they operated wow. for decades. Okay. There's very little in the book that isn't historically accurate. 99% of the book is historically accurate. Just the timing of some events is different. But, yeah, the native police were death squads. Uh, Aboriginal men would be recruited or kidnapped from... Other areas, usually from the south, you know, southerners from Victoria would would do the killings in New South Wales and then New South Wales mobs would do the killing in Queensland and so on. And uh, yeah, they, they were just death squads.
0: Uh, It's absolutely horrifying. And I guess what is so beautiful about your book is that it does kind of talk back to those colonial narratives and even some of the well-intentioned narratives, which are just, you know, a very simplistic one. But this is the complex world that you're creating here where the interaction between the black and white worlds was not always so simple. You know, there's Mm -hmm. resistance in the case of Dandali, Mm -hmm. there's friendship in the case of Tom Petrie, and there's co-option in the case of the native police. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, in the case of Tom Petrie, so he's a young man who kind of learns First nation's languages, he consults with and is friendly with the Indigenous people. So he's actually a real historical figure. Mm. What made you drawn to him as a character?
1: I was drawn to Tom Petrie because in, in one individual, one historical figure, he embodies a, a different possibility. You know, as someone, as a Scot, a, a child of Scottish parents, who arrived in um, Brisbane in 1838? I think it was. He he was absolutely fluent in the language and culture. He understood Aboriginal law and was initiated because he'd grown up. And so I I gave him a role to uh, push back uh, against this idea that, well, colonization was always going to happen. You know, you're not going to have a continent on the globe that isn't going to be subject to European imperialism or some kind of imperialism, which is probably true. But then the the second part of that idea, which is false, was that, well, because colonisation was inevitable, then so were all these atrocities, so were the killings, so was the attempt at genocide, you know, so was the attempt at ethnocide. And that's a, an added layer that is, I think, completely untrue. I spent 1997 living in Tonga, the kingdom of Tonga, Uh, and my understanding of Tongan culture is shallow. But one thing that I learnt there was that Tonga was always uh, a British protectorate, but it was never assailed in the way that Aboriginal nations were assailed by the British. Uh, And I think that that um, that was one thing in my back of my mind as I was writing, and to think, well, if there'd been more Tom Petries, if there'd been more white men who understood that we were not, you know, all the stereotypes. But here's a man that worked within Aboriginal law, who worked within Aboriginal governance, who understood that the Bonny Parliament made strategic decisions. And he went out with a senior man, Dalapai, with his blessing. And Dalapai sent him to a particular spot in southeast Queensland and said, OK, young Tom, you, you can settle on any of this 10,000 acres here uh, north of the Pine River and that wasn't a random decision. Dalapai did that because that spot was going to become a safe haven for Guri people. And it did. It became a safe haven, a, a, um, a place of refuge and a place where people could uh, counteract the neighbouring station, which was Whiteside Station, where um, massacres happened. You know, a lot of people died at Whiteside Station. And there's a suburb in North Brisbane today called Whiteside, which I think would be great to see it renamed as uh, Dallipi. That would be one dream of mine.
0: It's almost as if, like, there's no imagination to imagine an alternate possibility from the mindset that mm. is, you know, you dominate or are dominated. Exactly, you know, this. Yes. It's like almost that like there's no room for that. Yes. And, yes, yeah, this idea of the road's not taken, that also inspired the title of the novel.
1: Could yeah. you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I, I just really love the word Eden when I say hey because it's got Eden in it. And, you know, the east coast of what's now Australia was Eden, before the British, you know, it was so rich with um, with water and with game and with beauty, uh, and I, I, so I really liked. I was really pleased when I found the word Eden Glassy uh, and it also has lassie in it, which I liked as a, a woman writer. Uh, and Eden Glassie, I didn't, I didn't want to write Magunjan, um, the place before the British came, because I think that. That needs someone with a very, very uh, sophisticated understanding of culture, which I don't yet have. And I'm not writing about Brisbane because Brisbane is a a white artefact. Brisbane is something else again. I'm writing about Eden Glassy, a place where the two meet and, as I said before, where the possibilities for different futures existed as they still exist today.
0: So that was one of the names that was bandied about for that region. Mm. Is that
1: right? The Attorney General was a bloke called Forbes, a Scot, and so he mashed together uh, Edinburgh and Glasgow, the two names, and he thought that would be a good name for what uh, ended up being called Brisbane. Uh, But for a brief period there was a part of... uh, colonial Brisbane that was Eden Glacian so that's uh, that's why I chose the name and I wish I wish it had stuck oh. actually it's a much prettier name than Brisbane and if you google Brisbane you'll find out that it comes from two words one of them's Gaelic and one of them's English but the literal interpretation of Brisbane means smashed bones So, uh, you know. Oh, my
0: God. Melissa, you need to just have a university course because my (laughs) brain is exploding. Like, it's literally exploding from the amount of, like... like imaginative, like just possibilities and just the knowledge (laughs) and the depth. I'm going to move on to the next question, which is, you know, resistance. And so one of the most horrific scenes in the book is where the warrior Dandali is hanged in the town square. And Dandali also links us back to the modern world where the characters are trying to get a statue of him erected to celebrate his life. Mm -hmm. And last time I spoke to you, I think we actually talked about Black Lives Matter and the statues being Mm. toppled into the ocean. and um, being dismantled by protesters, were you kind of influenced by that whole movement?
1: Yeah, I think think so. And I also think that sometimes, not always, but sometimes fiction writers are about six to 12 months ahead of the general population. And so, (laughs) you know, I can't... They got the idea from you. (laughs) I couldn't count the number of times I've written something and then it's happened, you know. It's like it's uncanny uh, how many times things have have just sort of come along on the tail of something I've written and, and happened more or less the way I've written them. Wow. Uh, but but the statue of Dundalee was also a mechanism. Uh, uh, it was a, a, a tool for me to insert the lesson that Winona needs to learn about um, what she should, should and shouldn't be mucking around with culturally. And I think what, what was so kind of powerful about that
0: scene is Dundalee and his people are given such grace and dignity. And what you actually come across from that scene is kind of how inept, bumbling, dopey the English were. And like their domination wasn't this all-powerful, om- omniscient thing mm. that we are kind of made to feel like. It was almost mm. this accident of history, this blunt force
1: horror. Was that a kind of deliberate thing for you to paint that scene in that Particular way, yeah. I always think of train spotting. You know, where the Scottish characters are saying, uh, "I don't hate the English; they're just wankers." <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's going to
0: be on the trailer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think it is important to show how out of their depth uh, the British were. Uh, you know they they were literally on the other side of the globe to anything that they thought of as home they were foreigners in a foreign land and uh, and all they had was their their whips and their bibles and their guns that was that was how they survived and it was about survival you know they brought this terrible idea with them that we are each other's enemies not each other's brothers and sisters and they brought the horrible concept that life was to be survived and not to be lived
0: going back into the the modern era, you know, it wouldn't be a Melissa Lukashenko book if it wasn't a great love story (laughs) (laughs) with an outspoken, feisty lead. And, you know, in 24, 24, we meet Grandma Eddie and her great-granddaughter Winona, who is black, beautiful, and in danger of losing her sanity. (laughs) Um, um, the the witty banter between her and Dr. Johnny is is so good. It reminds me a lot of Kerry Soltar in Too Much Lip. So what do you love about women like Winona and why is centering love and black love so important for you?
1: Uh, Oh, that's that's a big question, isn't it? Um, I guess I love Winona because... um, because she's fun, you know. <laughs> Winona was just the fun, the fun element of the whole book, and uh, I think I partly wrote Winona into the story because I knew people would expect that from me. You know, they expect these, these feisty and political female characters, uh, and I didn't want my readership to be, you know, entirely disappointed with what I was offering. But she worked really well. Everyone. If it doesn't was...
0: have a sexy bantering scene. Yeah, yeah. It's like no, Melissa, you we demand that from you now. <laughs>
1: yeah, every book. <laughs> Every book, oh god, for years and years, I've wanted to write a book called A Blackfella Abroad, and uh, so now I'm going to have to insert find a Winona in uh, in New York and Washington and Dublin.
0: We're literally just fulfilling vicariously our romantic fantasies <laughs> of <through> your characters. <laughs> like honestly there are like a lot of serious themes in the book but there's a lot of humor there's a lot of great love which makes us feel the grief even more and you know humor is just a huge part of your books and it's it's really subversive I remember that line which made me laugh out loud where and Winona says you know you're a black fellow and you're shit scared of a hundred year old blind (laughs) woman in a wheelchair
1: yeah, my daughter loves that line. She quoted that back to me and said she cracked right up at that one too.
0: I love that line. I think mean, the characters are always having a laugh, even in really bad circumstances. And I guess why is humour humor so important for you? Um,
1: well, because it's realistic for one thing, you know. we uh, There's a lot of uh, hard stuff and a lot of oppression in our lives, but, you know, there's a lot of humour too. Um the, my friend Jenny Fraser, Dr. Jenny Fraser, who's a Yulgum woman, woman, um, she was at a festival recently and uh, she she wasn't there illegitimately but she kind of didn't have a pass or anything. And I, I said, oh, the green room's over there. Go and grab a sandwich and a feed. So she rocks up at the green room and uh, one of the volunteers says, oh, here are you. What are you doing here? And she explained and they sort of weren't convinced that she belonged there and they tried to turf her out. And she stood her ground and, you know, had a bit of an argument with him and this person said, well, I I really don't want to have to get security to come and, you know, remove you by force. (laughs) Jenny just goes, oh, wow, you're threatening me with violence at 10 a.m. It's like, wow, day violence. (laughs)
0: This is novel. (laughs) Just My morning coffee.
1: I mean, but day drinking, you know, day violence.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the humour is a way of taking the power back, isn't it? It's kind of like reorientating you to the fact that hey, I'm not insane. It's the world
1: that's insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That power Um, to to decide for yourself what you're looking at and what you think of it is so important. You know, and Alexis Wright talks about that: the sovereignty of the mind, the sovereignty of the imagination.
0: Yeah, like I'm not gonna let this fail me. It's actually just so silly. <laughs> it's so silly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's bloody silly. Yeah. I mean there's one more question which I, I did want to ask before before we head it off. Yep. Spirituality and supernatural, they play a big role in your books and the non-physical characters are almost just as important. Um and it's it's part of the everyday world of the characters. Um the spirituality is the intrinsic part of their worldview. How important was it for you to include this? And were there any sensitivities that you needed to be aware of?
1: Mm. Yeah, lots of sensitivities. And realistically, uh, Mullinyan and Dalapai and Yeren and um, uh, the Waldman, Yeren's wife, they would have experienced the world in far more spiritual terms than I've conveyed. But um, I just did it to the best of my ability and to the limits of my cultural knowledge Uh, And it was important to me that I didn't bugger anything up because, you know, people will read this book and take it as gospel. If there was an opportunity in the book to say, well, this is what's happening for the characters on a spirit level, if I wasn't sure that what I was doing was correct, then I just left it alone. So uh, it's a fairly light touch in terms of spirituality if you're you're talking about Aboriginal um, uh, classical culture. But yeah, I I think the response to the book has been really positive, and uh, I think people are getting what I wanted from the book, which was to say there was there was an entire universe here. One of the Roman uh, writers um, said, you know, they they made a wilderness and called it peace, and uh, that that's basically what I was trying to convey in the book. They they came to Eden. They made it a wilderness and they called it peace and it didn't have to be that way. And because there were different possibilities back then, there's also different possibilities today. There are always more than one path forward.
0: Wow. Thank you so much, Melissa, for gifting us this universe, this beautiful book, which is one of the best like best reads of the year you've got to get it it's so deep so powerful so many layers thank you so much for being with us melissa appreciate you anytime thanks so much sarah thanks for being part of the sbs book club i'd love you to follow share rate or review the podcast if you're enjoying it you can share your own thoughts and picks with the hashtag sbs book club see you for the next episode of sbs book club Get ready by reading Tony Birch's Women and Children, set in 1960s Melbourne. It's a powerful book centred around young Joe Clooney, who awakes one day to find his auntie Una on the doorstep, bruised and bleeding. We talk to Tony about love, family, and the silence around domestic violence.